Well, hey, everybody. My name is John Elmore. Uh, oh, th- oh, that's for him, not me. Uh, I'm the director of community and regeneration here at the Dallas campus and so thankful to be with all of you, including Plano, Fort Worth, and Frisco. And this is not a random baby that I grabbed. No parents need to worry. This is our boy Judd. He is our third child and uh, he's a hoss. You ever have one of those dreams where you show up somewhere and you're only in your underwear? It's his reality. <laughs> oh, thank God that he doesn't know. But we'll share it at your rehearsal dinner. Uh, I used to be in advertising before I worked in the church. I was in advertising for a few years down in Austin, Texas. And one thing, there's kind of this golden rule of advertising. And if you got a bad product or you got something you're trying to sell or whatever it is, you can always throw a baby or a puppy on the screen and you can sell things. And so uh, I'm running that offense, not to sell you anything, and certainly not a bad or dated product, but this is to compel you, rather, to the truth that God says about mankind. All of mankind, every person that has ever lived, including and especially you and every person you will ever encounter. And that's why I brought Judd up here, is he's gonna help teach us some of the points about what it means to be made in the image of God and the personhood and worth and dignity of each person. And so um, that's why he's here as we continue in our doctrine series called Seven, the Seven Essential Doctrines of the Christian Faith, today covering mankind. And so if Judd will cooperate, the first thing that you can learn through Judd is Imago Dei, that he was made in the image of God Even here as a little baby, what he represents and what he will grow up to be, it's already within him. He has an immortal soul inside of this little boy. He will live forever in eternity in heaven or hell. We pray that it will be heaven, that one day he will trust in Jesus as he cries out for peanut butter Cheetos. No judgment. You'd feed your kid whatever if he was on stage too to keep him quiet. You're like, peanut butter Cheetos? Are those non-GMO? No. But he loves them. Uh, In addition to his immortal soul, he has morality and a conscience wired into him. Uh, There are certain things that he will inherently know because God has wired that into every single human being that they, they inherently know. Every civilization for all time has always known that it's wrong to murder, steal, rape, You can look at the most ancient of written texts and social codes, and you will find that the ancient Sumerians and the Babylonians and the Syrians and all across the world, they knew somehow that it was wrong to do certain things. That's God creating him in his own image, mankind. And so there's morality there. There's also a volition, which means will. He has the ability to decide things. He'll see something across the room and start army crawling towards it. Because he decides, I want that, I need that. He has emotions, which he will let you know, maybe up here, because he's past his nap time and his lunch time. But he'll let you know certain things. And then beyond that, that's the Imago Dei. He's trying to check himself out. That's uh, vanity and depravity. We'll get to that. (laughs) That is the biggest of your problems, son. Uh, The other thing is what I just called him, gender, son, He came out a boy. He is a boy. He will always be a boy. He will grow up into a man. He will wear male clothes. He will wear his hair in male fashion, if I have anything to do with it. Although he has more hair than I do, except 
His is still growing and mine is going. That's not funny. Uh, but that's important because his gender was determined by God. And it wasn't just when he came out, and it's not dependent upon what his desires are or aren't. He is a boy and will always be a boy, and his choice will be singlehood and marriage to a woman for the rest of his days. And in fact, we could have taken a blood test even before he came out and known he was a boy. The creator determined his gender. The other thing that we can learn is life. You can look at this little boy and know that there is life there, and that that life is valuable. And he is no more or less valuable than I am. We are of the same value and dignity and worth. Just because he's nine months doesn't make him any more or less valuable than me at 42 years of age. In fact, even when he was in the womb, uh, when that began 18 months ago, he was still of the same value at conception. He didn't start having value somehow just because he came into the world. He came into the world when he was conceived, and that's when his value began. Now, despite all those wonderful qualities, there's another thing that God did not give him. His parents gave to him because my parents gave to me and my grandparents gave to them and the great-grandparents throughout all generations from Adam and Eve, and that is this, he was given depravity. This little boy, this little chunk of love, despite all the wrinkles that shouldn't be in places they are, and as cute as he may be in the coups that he makes, he is depraved. He is a slave to sin and addicted to peanut butter Cheetos. He has a sin nature. Right now, he is a slave to sin. In fact, 2 Timothy 2 says he's even a slave to Satan. And the only way out of that slavery is through Jesus Christ. And so my greatest hope for this boy and all of our children is that they would know Jesus. My greatest hope for every single person that I ever encounter is that they would know Jesus because otherwise we are born into this world with a sin nature and we stand condemned apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ. Now, if that's not enough to give you motivation to listen, either because of how cute he is or because of um, the serious nature of the depravity of man and all that God wired up into him, that's where we're gonna be today. Now, because he sleeps and eats like it's his job, I'm gonna pass him off to his mama. So. Oh, thank you. Thank you, baby. Y'all, that's Laura, my wife, and is such a gift um, to me. So. Thanks so much for allowing us to introduce the two of them. So today, again, we're covering mankind. And the reason why this is critical, in case you're like, I don't know, big theological doctrinal discussion on mankind, that probably doesn't have a whole lot of relevance to me. Sounds like a seminary class. Here's why it matters to you. Because if you start to unravel, if you'll pull that thread of how God made mankind, every single human, if you start to pull that thread and undo any part of it, the whole thing unravels, and it will in your life. If you start to live outside of the doctrine of humanity that God has ordained, it will unravel. That sin will have no end. And we see this in culture today is it is unraveling at a rapid pace before our eyes. And that's why it is important for us in our lives as we glorify God and also as we interact with every single person that we could walk with him. 
Now, I'm gonna give you a little bit of a caveat up front. There's some heavy stuff in this. We're talking about depravity of man. And so our other doctrinal statements of all of them, of all seven of the essential doctrines, this is the longest one. It's becoming increasingly longer as man continues to redefine things. We're having to bring clarity about how God defines them. So right now, the doctrine of man is the longest thing. And when I say doctrine of man, ladies, like anytime I say that, I mean all of mankind. That encompasses every human being as we talk about doctrine of man. And with that, I think the good place to start would be to read the statement that the elders and the equipping team have put together for us to be informed about the truth of mankind. It'll be on the screen. We believe man was created innocent and in the image and likeness of God, but that man sinned, bringing both physical and spiritual death to himself and his posterity, can do nothing to merit God's favor and as such is in need of salvation. We believe that mankind's sinful nature is rebellious towards God and is good designed for life and worship. Mankind's rebellion causes confusion about good and evil and harm to people, ultimately ending in judgment, despair, and death. We believe God created mankind in his image, forming each person in the womb from conception until the point of death when they breathe their last and assigning gender to his people, male and female. He created them sexually and biologically different, but with equal person, dignity, and value. We believe that God ordained marriage as a lifelong union between one man and one woman, those who accept and live within God's design for sex, biological gender, and marriage experience the blessing of his good design and decisions to change, alter, or modify God's will in marriage, sex, or gender are part of man's brokenness and lead to despair. However, we believe that God loves and pursues mankind despite our rebellion. He offers forgiveness, healing, and abundant life to anyone who turns to him in humility. Today we're gonna to be taking a look at mankind with some eternally impacting and life-altering statements about it. What God designed, what man has done with it, and how we then should live as a result. And the way that we're gonna walk through this is by image, gender, and mission. Those are the categories that we're gonna talk about today as we look at how God defined mankind, how man now has defined mankind, and what we do as a result of that. Now here's the interesting thing about what we're gonna talk about today, is that everything I am going to share is included in the first four chapters of your Bible. The first four chapters unpack immortality, morality and conscious, the mission of God, created in the image of God, the dignity and life, sanctity of life of every human being that has ever lived, sin, Satan, wrestling with the flesh, that we are emotional, volitional beings, and also the gospel, that Satan will strike the heel, but there is one coming who will crush the head of the serpent. The gospel there in Genesis 3.15. All of that is in the first four chapters of Genesis. It's as if God ordained by the Holy Spirit, written by Moses, that any person on any continent reading any translation of this book, the only holy scriptures, whether they find it in a hotel or in their living room or by circumstance online, that they would find, who am I, who is God, 
what is this brokenness I am experiencing in my life and the world and what is the only hope that I have? All that compacted right there if they read no further than the first four chapters. How amazing is God? So the first point under image and how God set this up is that God made us to relate and create. He made us to be in right relationship with him and with all of mankind and to create. He made us as vice regents or stewards that just as God brought order to the chaos that was, he's put us now on earth to carry out that same mission through creation, that we are co-laboring with him in a creative sense and in right relationship with him. And as such, because we are imago Dei, this Latin term that means made in the image of God, reflective of him, that he alone through mankind got apparently on his knees having formed Adam and breathed the very breath of God into man, uniquely into man and woman, that they would be image bearers and, and immortal, spending eternity in heaven or hell, because of how God designed them. And because of that worth, in Genesis 1.26, it says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, all of us here today know from our own lives, from reading the news and interacting with family at holidays, that we know like, man, God, God, something has gone awry because man is not still in the image of God. There's a lot of strife, there's a lot of hurt, there's a lot of pain. The image has been marred. How God originally created man is not as it always was. This was in perfection in the garden before there was sin, and now we have something different. There's a picture that I want to show you that's going to come up on the screen. It's Salvador Mundi, savior of the world. It was painted by Leonardo da Vinci in the 1500s. Now, the painting that you're seeing right now has been restored. It was marred over time. It's over 500 years old, and over the course of time, as it deteriorated and as it passed through various hands, other people covered over it. They, they put paint upon what the original creator determined it would be. They were trying to make it better. They made it worse. They defaced it. They marred it. They lessened what it was to the point that in 1958, that painting by Leonardo da Vinci, any single person, I would argue, in this room could have purchased at one point in their life. That painting was sold for $58. $58. You're gasping, probably, because it was sold last year for $450 million. That's a pretty good return. <laughs> Leonardo didn't get a penny. But it was bought by a Saudi prince for $450 million. It's, it's the most expensive thing that has ever been auctioned in the history of the world on known record. And here's an incredible irony of ironies like savior of the world, picture of Jesus, is now going to be displayed in Saudi Arabia in the Louvre that they're putting there. So in a really strange way, praise God for oil money because they alone could probably buy this painting and stick it there in a Muslim country where all of these Islamic followers are gonna be staring at a picture of Jesus that says savior of the world. Like God is incredible that he would do that as a grace to them. But the reason why I share that is because though it had been marred and was sold for $58, there was one person that said, no, I'll pay $450 million. And the point is this, that a thing is determined its value by what someone is willing to pay for it. Something is valued by what another is willing to pay for it. In the case of humanity, 
When God looked down on a marred, defaced, altered and changed, covered up with sin, humanity, and was asked the question in the cosmic realm, what's that worth to you now, now that they've fallen from your good perfection of relate and create? He said, my very son of infinite worth and value, my sinless son, the only begotten son, God in flesh, I will send him to atone for every single person that has been marred and defaced by sin. He will go, he will live a sinless life. He will be crucified on a cross and raised again for their redemption of infinite worth, the son of God. And that's what he says your value is, of infinite worth, because you were created in the image of God. Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrated his own love for you in this. While you were still a sinner, Jesus died for you. While you were still a sinner, Jesus died for you. Of infinite worth, created in the image of God. Now, when I used to hear about <clears throat> Jesus and the Bible, as a child, my teen years growing up, I thought the deal was this. You trust in Jesus, he keeps you out of hell, and then you have to live the rest of your life for him by following all of his rules. And it was this impossible crushing weight. And I remember being in junior high and high school and being like, all right, this, this week I'm gonna try harder. This week I'm not gonna sin, God, I'm so sorry. And I would fail him time and time again. And it was a crushing weight, all those rules that were upon me that I would always fail. And so I just said, forget it. You know what? It's probably not you. It just must be me. I'm just a colossal screw up. And that's never what God intended. He created us for a relationship that would be in relationship with God and man. Jesus says in Matthew 22, 37 through 39, that all of the law and prophets are summed up in this, love God and love others, that's it. And to love God is to walk with God. I can't keep all the rules, but if I am loving God and in a right relationship with him, I'm gonna walk with him all days. He will be the one to keep me on the path. I can't, it's a sheer impossibility. And he knew that, that's why he said, just love God all day, every day, and love others as you go. I made you to be in relationship with them. The second thing is gender. Gender is defined by the designer, not the desire. Gender is defined by the designer and not whatever desire may be within your heart. God gets that choice. It's like Steve Jobs when he created the iPhone, the iPad, the i everything else. This man created a thing, kind of redefined a category, and he got to choose everything about it whether it was like space black, silver, white, what apps could or couldn't work on it, how it would function, what would go into that thing. He gets to determine to change the plugs with every iteration so that the technology is obsolete. He got the right on everything. He was the designer. And so what he said went, and we were all uh, in, in understanding with him. And in the same way, God, having designed mankind, says this is the way you're to operate. It's from Genesis 1.27. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 2, 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Compacted within that verse, you have gender, marriage, and sex, which is incredible. Right there in one verse that God lays out some truth. Male and female, he created them, equal in dignity and worth, and yet distinct 
in who they would be and complementary to each other in marriage and even within the body of Christ here in the church that we would complement each other and co-labor together for the kingdom of God. We're not different in a bad way. We're different in this really incredible way that builds up the body. And that's the gift of God. We don't dismiss that and try to like come together into the middle into one like unigender, but rather he uniquely created in really beautiful giftedness. Marriage, one woman and one man for one lifetime. That's his design. You see it reflected even in some of the animals in nature, how they will have one mate for life. There's a reflection there. And then sex, only within the context of marriage, how mankind has broken that. Only within the context of marriage, for procreation and for pleasure that glorifies God, but again within the context of marriage. He says in Hebrews, keep the marriage bed pure. The third thing that you will see how God designed is mission. And so here for mission, we were intended to live for God, to live for God. The Westminster Catechism, which is this um, lengthy uh, way that we can unpack theology written in the 1600s, said this, the chief end of man, mankind, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's it. That is the summation of our life, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that in that, there is fullness of life. There's a guy in regeneration, he went through with a lot of heaviness and pain. And then after that year in regeneration, he came to a leader dinner meeting because God appointed him to be a leader. Through a, you know, interviews and applications, he became a leader. And I walk in and I see him for the first time and he's like leaning on the table, just like kind of staring off into the distance. And I was like, hey man, how you doing? Because he kind of looked, I mean, he's just lost in his thoughts. And he's like, I don't know what's going on, but I have never felt so alive in all of my life. And I was like, Oh, yeah, I know what's going on. He's like, you do? What's going on? What is it? I was like, bro, for the first time in your life, you are doing what you were created to do. You're making disciples. That's what God intended for you to do all of your life, was to live for him, to live for God. That's why you feel so alive, is that you're now doing the role that God gave you to do. In Genesis 2.15, it says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. This was his worship. Man is made to worship, to focus on God, to bring him glory, to co-labor with God for his kingdom unending, for his glory, and by his power, how the Lord's prayer ends. And given the fact that every person is an immortal, that every single person that you pass by at work in your neighborhood and family reunions or whatever it may be is an immortal that will spend eternity either in heaven or hell, and that should be one of the most sobering thoughts to ever cross your mind and put you on mission to live for God because there is only one hope, communion with God. Now, if, if this is what God ordained and we take a look at our life and the world and we're like, man, there's like a disconnect because that's not where the state of affairs are locally on a micro level or macro on a global level as I read the news. What in the world has happened? And here's what has happened is that if God had creation, man brought destruction. Now, <clears throat> many of you know the Genesis account. In Genesis 3, well, earlier than that, God gives them one command, Adam and Eve. He says, hey, there is a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of it because when you eat of it, Genesis 2.17, and the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. 
And then Satan comes along, the serpent, who was the most crafty, and whispers to Eve and says, did God really say that you'll die? No, 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 no. You won't die. The reason why God told you that is because when you take of that fruit, he knows that you'll become like God. That's why he doesn't want you to eat it. You can be like God. He's trying to keep you down. And so Eve saw that the tree was a delight to the eyes, pleasing to the flesh, and able to make one wise, took of it and ate, gave it to her passive husband, standing by, watching the whole thing unfold. And he eats of it, and sin enters into the human race forever, as they then have children that have evil sin within them. We know the Cain and Abel story as Cain murders Abel and ripples out throughout all of eternity right into my boy, Judd, a sin nature that entered into Adam and Eve and has not left the human race since. There's another thing the theologians would call this is total depravity, that as sin entered into the human race, they have no hope apart from God sovereignly intervening by the Holy Spirit to regenerate them. It means, it says in Ephesians 2, that we are children of wrath, dead in our sins and transgressions, following the world, Satan, and our flesh. There's no like spark of good in us, but that apart from God's sovereign and providential intervention to rescue us, God makes us alive in Christ because he sees us in our depravity. How great of a God we serve that he would go on that rescue mission because as Adam and Eve left the garden that day, you see, they were, they were banished from the garden, which, which at first glance looks really cruel. Like, man, they, they take, it's like one strike, you're out, God. Like they took a bite of a piece of fruit and you kick them out of paradise in the garden, which seems kind of harsh. Like, man, really rough landlord. Like one rule, get out. But in the Genesis narrative, what you see is God says, we have to get man out of here because otherwise they're gonna take another bite of another piece of fruit from another tree called the tree of life. And if they do that, they will be locked eternally in this state of sin before I can redeem them. They will be locked into their depravity. And so God ushers them out of the garden into the world. But they weren't the only ones to leave the garden that day. Someone else left the garden that day. God himself. God himself followed them out of the garden that day on a rescue mission for them and for you and for every single person that has ever walked this earth. He left the garden. He rested on the seventh day and he has not rested an hour of a single day ever since creation. He has been working day and night, 24 seven for you that you would be saved, that you would find hope from the depravity that you were born into. That's how incredible and loving our God is. But as sin entered into the world, there's this other thing because you might be thinking like, wait, where's God? Because there's so much evil in this world. There's disease and destruction and natural disasters. And so where is God? Which is a really good question. That's called theodicy. Like how can there be a good God and all the bad that I'm experiencing? The answer given alone in Christianity that makes any sense at all is that sin entered into the world. And so when sin did, it separated God from man and brought depravity and enslavement. 
It separated man from man. Now we would be at enmity with one another. Titus 3 says we are hated and hating one another. It brought sin, brought uh, depravity to creation. Creation was subject to decay. That's where you get the disease and disaster and destruction. And the other thing that it did is sin brought destruction against self. You see this with Self-exaltation and self-deprecation and self-harm and suicide. Sin has destroyed and brought depravity into this world, which is why we're in the state we're in. When I heard uh, Genesis 2.17, and the day you eat of it, you should surely die, I used to hear this phrase that would say, hey, uh, sin leads to death. And, and there's freedom in Christ. And I was like, yeah, that's bogus. Like, it's not true. Sin doesn't lead to death. It doesn't take, I would take a look around in junior high and high school and college and I would watch the people as they would drink and have inappropriate relationships with girls and looking at pornography and smoking and then weed and pills, like the sin progressed the older I got and I'm like, it doesn't lead to death, cheating on tests, it doesn't lead to death. I have been lied to, it doesn't lead to death. In fact, it looks like it leads to a lot of fun. It looks like an incredible amount of fun and nobody's dropping dead because they looked at porn or got drunk on the weekend and hooked up with that girl. It, it just seems like they're having a better life than I am and a lot more fun than me trying to follow all these rules. And I was like, freedom in Christ. Jesus is keeping me from doing everything that I wanna do. It's not freedom. I thought that for a while until 2005 when I was 30 years old and I had a loaded shotgun to my head. And then I realized, yeah, sin leads to death. Sin leads to death. It's just got a slow fuse. Satan wants you to go down that path as long as you can, as despairing as you can, as depressed as you can, as distanced from God as you can, so that he will absolutely lead you to death. Sin brings death. I can attest to the truth in the scripture. The personhood of God now, if you think about this, how we were made to relate and create, now depraved and enslaved, you think how else sin might lead to death and how God created dignity and value that he ordained from conception, Psalm 139 says, he formed Every man and woman in the inward parts, in the womb, knit the child together from the very time that they breathe their last. It says that God ordained all of their days before yet one of them came to be. The God ordained life, beginning and end into immortality. And yet man now has overruled that and says, no, 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 no. No, we will determine who lives, how long they live, when they die and how they die. Let me unpack that for you. We know from wars, massacres, holocaust, we know that to be the case, but now we have legalized that because it wasn't enough to do it illegally. Now there's a legal way. Euthanasia, which is a Greek construct. You meaning good, thanatos, death. You put them together, euthanasia, which is such a like, misnomer that there would be a good death administered by man, by another man. And so you've got euthanasia that's now legal in parts of Europe, parts of South America, and even parts of North America right to the north of us in Canada. It is spreading throughout the world. And this is not like, hey, I feel like I don't have a quality of life and therefore I'd like someone to assist me. This is someone else determining, we don't like 
who you are or where you are. We don't think that you have a quality of life despite what you think, and so we are going to call it euthanasia. What we're going to do is execute you, either because of physical disability, a mental disability, lack of quality of life. It's been done in the past for what they've called genetic cleansing. It is an evil, and it's spreading throughout the world. You think about assisted suicide. This is now right home here in America. It's in seven states, District of Columbia, and spreading as the case builds for that, that when someone voluntarily says, I feel I do not have a quality of life, that there can be a medical practitioner that says, okay, well, I will assist you in committing suicide, which is really just an accomplice to murder. Well, we've legalized that. There's a brokenness. Suicide, NBC News reported in the last... 10 years, the last 10 years, suicide rates have spiked 30% in the last 10 years. By the time you came into this parking lot and the time you go, 10 people will have committed suicide in the United States. Exponentially more will have attempted it, but 10 lives will be lost as Satan and man's destruction just ripple through. Abortion, Here locally in Dallas, Texas, we have a billboard right now. You'll see it on the screen that says, black women take care of their families by taking care of themselves. Abortion is self-care. There are so many lies in that billboard and so misleading to people that a woman could take care of her family, including the one in her womb, by committing an abortion. And let me just tell you something. If there's a man or woman in this audience, and statistically there are, that have been a part of an abortion, God's not mad at you. We are so sorry for your pain and the situation that you were in. And we love you and God loves you and there's forgiveness in Christ and we have ministries here that will walk with you through that. Someone cares and forgotten fathers, you are loved. You are loved deeply. Our relationships have changed dramatically, clearly, as I talked about man against man, which we just covered, but also we have two enemies, external and internal. Satan, externally, is our enemy that has followed us all throughout this, uh, has, has followed us in the depravity and the enslavement. Again, it says that we're enslaved to sin and Satan prior to Christ and apart from him. And so here's a little phrase, if you're in Christ, is that Satan can't take your soul. If you trusted in Jesus... He can't take your soul. You have been sealed by the Holy Spirit and you belong to God. He can't take your soul, but what Satan now aims to do, he will settle for second best. His aim is now to take your role, your role in life, what God has ordained for you to do, to live for God, to love God and love others, to be on mission for him. If he can't take your soul, he will settle gladly to take your role. And you don't have to read enough news to see all of the pastors that have fallen to sin and they have been sidelined, even taken out of the ministry because of choices they've made as Satan whispered in, their flesh took hold, and now Satan has taken their role. He has has moved them out of a place of speaking truth. And I want you to know, I'm not immune to that. No person in this church is immune to that. It terrifies me. It keeps me running scared to Jesus on a daily basis. Which is why every single week, if not more frequently, my community group, we are confessing sin on a really frequent basis. 
because we're sinning, unfortunately, on a really frequent basis and bringing it into the light and praying for each other and reminding each other of truth so that we would not fall prey to the whims and whispers of Satan that he would try to take our role. And that's not reserved just for pastors. That's any Christian that has trusted Christ. You are called a minister of reconciliation and an ambassador on behalf of God. That's everyone's role. We are marked men and women, but greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The other thing is the flesh. The daily default setting of every single person, whether in Christ or not, is the flesh. It says in Galatians 5 that the flesh and the spirit war against one another so that you do not do what you want to do. And therefore, we've got to, as Todd shared in the spirit doctrine, that we've got to yield ourselves to the spirit, that we would walk with him and thus not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's the only way. Rules are like a chalk line on a football field. They can't keep you in or out. You've got to walk with God. He's the one that will keep you on the straight and narrow. The spirit will keep you. John Owen, a theologian from the 1600s, said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. There's no neutral. You're either on the offensive by the spirit putting to death sin or it will be putting you to death. We are to bring order instead of chaos and yet the world is in this chaotic flip. The second thing that we'll talk about is gender. Now we've flipped that as well. Now gender is defined by our desire rather than by designer. Culture has determined that gender is now defined by desire rather than the designer. This is from Romans 1, 24 through 25. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever, amen. As we think about gender, I wanna tell you about Facebook right now. So Facebook, arguably, is the most influential organization in the world, certainly in America, because two-thirds of people in the US, 1.x billion, it's on the rise, globally, but two-thirds of Americans are on Facebook. And what Facebook will offer you as you log in and create a profile is male, female, other. And it's not just other. When you type in a letter, a drop-down menu that you'll see on the screen will appear before your eyes, giving you one of currently 56 genders. 56 when you exchange this truth, when you begin to pull that thread and say, I don't believe, it unravels. Y'all, it's 56 right now. I guarantee you, in real time, there is someone trying to find their gender bias or preference, not finding it, and emailing Facebook and say, how dare you be not inclusive of how I identify as my gender? It's 56 now. By the end of the year, I bet it'll be 70. Because God's, Design is now defined by desire, by culture. So you think about the implications of this. If there's 56 genders, how many options for marriage will there be? It's gonna continue unraveling. Now, we as a church don't hang our heads in dismay. We speak truth, 
We love, we don't hurl insults, but we bring light and truth and influence to the place where we live. We vote for candidates that are upholding godly truth and we keep in perspective. This home ain't my home. I live for another kingdom. I am a citizen of heaven. And this world and its desires are passing away and my hope is not in what anybody ordains because I know that God ordained marriage and his will will stand. You think about the design of sex and how now it's riddled with pornography, anonymous hookups, artificial intelligence sex through virtual reality, robotic sex, sex trafficking, abuse is through the roof of children and minors because people are given over to porn and then acting out on the vulnerable. I was sexually abused when I was a kid. I know many of you here have been. God will redeem your pain. Now, before you cast judgment on everything we've just described, John Owen also said, the seed of every sin lives within every heart. So don't be disgusted by the culture and how they are embracing sin. Of course they are. They're depraved and enslaved. Be disgusted by the sin that is within you and fall on your knees before the Lord and ask him to cleanse you and confess it to your brothers and sisters that you may be healed. The third thing that's gotten flipped here, we were intended to live for God, now we're living like God's. That's our mission in life, is to live like God's. Genesis 3, 5, this was Satan's lie, now we're living it out. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Now that wasn't the case, that was a lie, but we've been trying ever since the fall to clamor to live like God. Now you might think like, what are you talking about? I don't, I don't wanna live like God. We wanna live like God through entitlement. Anytime you've ever complained about any amount of suffering or how things are, our first world problems, we are wanting to live like gods. Anytime you're checking your likes and your retweets and how many friends you have, you're wanting to be worshiped and thought highly of. That is wanting to be like God. All of the comfort that we crave, rather than being on mission for God, we settle to eat, drink, and be merry. Though Paul says, that's what people who don't know the resurrection do. And I do that. I set my sights so often on comfort because I wanna worship and be worshiped. Going back to Facebook, Forbes and the Journal of Social and Clinical Psychology, they have linked Facebook and depression Facebook and depression, I would go further and say any social media and depression, they have been inextricably linked. They know there is a direct one-for-one -one parallel that people who engage with Facebook are headed towards depression. Not only, they, they, for a while they just knew that was happening. They didn't know why. Now they know why. It's social comparison. Social comparison. You have what I want. You have who I want. You have the experience of life that I want. You have more friends than me. You went to a party that I didn't get invited to. Your body looks better than my body. You got to a school that I didn't want to. Your career is better than mine. It appears that you have more money than me, which is all just wanting to live like gods. We've flipped it. And now it's, go figure, bringing death and depression and depravity further and further and further. I tried this as a 12-year experiment. I tried for 12 years living according to the world, and I chased money, women, status, career, drugs, alcohol, cars, house, property. I tried to get everything that the world said, this will satisfy you. Live like a God as best as within your ability. And it ended up with me as a recovering alcoholic wanting to die. 
because I couldn't numb the pain. I hated my life. It was so vain and worthless. I felt like a dog chasing my tail until I prayed to God, this God that I thought was distant and unknown, and I said, Jesus, I have squandered everything that you gave me, everything, 12 years of my life. And I was kneeling beside the couch that I was living on, having lost everything, and I said, whatever I have left is yours. My money, my mind, my body, my geography, where I live, what I do, the relationships that I have, everything is yours, Jesus. And you know what happened? He forgave me, and he didn't treat me as my sins deserve. And he not only forgave me because he saw all of the depravity that was in me. I lived that as best as I could. And then Jesus. And Jesus not only forgave me and saved me, he took all that was within me, all that sin that had wrecked me and devoured me and sanctified me by the Spirit, working to undo all of this desire and make me back to how God designed and intended me. And then, not only that, as if it wasn't enough that he saved me and was sanctifying me, he then gave me my mission back. And he said, I know you were trying to live like a God, now would you go live for God? And he sent me on mission to go live for him. And brothers and sisters, that is the call upon every single person's life. If you are in Christ, you have been saved. He will sanctify you unto glorification, and you have been sent. It is not to eat, drink, or be merry, for tomorrow you die. Rather, it is to live for God, for his glory, that all may know, all who are still in their depravity and enslaved, that there is hope through Jesus Christ our Lord, that every person who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Let me pray. Father, I thank you and praise you that you have saved us through Jesus, that you have reversed the curse. You've not only saved us, you, you sanctify us by your word and through the spirit and the sharpening of our brothers and sisters. And not only that, you have ordained that it wasn't just enough to rescue us, but you have sent us on a rescue mission to go and proclaim the truth, the only hope that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through the Son. Amen. Stand and worship.